Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the guest speaker talks from the 2019 East End Conference held in the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the East End of London on the 5th and 6th of October 2019. The third speaker at this year's conference is Trevor Bond. Trevor Bond has presented at several past conferences and events, including the Casebook Classic Crime Symposium, the Clannelly Literary Festival, the UK National Archives, and is the co-author of the book, The A to Z of Victorian Crime. His talk at the East End Conference is entitled Attila the Sailor Man, The Ratcliffe Highway Murders. On September the 6th, 1888, six days after the death of Marianne Nichols and on the day of her funeral, the Star, never a publication prone to understatement, uh, started its editorial with references not only to the growing public attention to the Whitechapel murders, but to Dickens' Martin Chuzzlewit, the French Revolution, and later in the piece, Macbeth, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and... Uh, melodramatic and seemingly imaginary situations such as a man gouging out his own eyes and a woman cutting off a child's feet. Their point was simple enough and has been repeated often since. Nothing's shocking, as Jane's addiction might have said, or at least nothing's shocking anymore. Amongst all this, the writer also referenced another set of East End crimes 77 years earlier, the celebrated Ratcliffe Highway murders, are, however, less readily remembered today, so what better excuse to take a look? (laughs) The first thing to remember is these weren't Victorian murders. Rather, they took place in 1811, closer in time to the 1735 Witchcraft Act than the coining of the name Jack the Ripper. The US Declaration of Independence was 35 years old, the United Kingdom was 10 years old, the Napoleonic Wars were ongoing, And in February, King George III had been declared irredeemably mad and his son had taken over ruling the country as Prince Regent. Yes, we are in Blackadder III. (laughs) (laughs) Ratcliffe and nearby areas were at the time undergoing great change. In 1794, there'd been a fire that destroyed much of the area and left around 400 people sheltering in tents in the churchyard of St George in the east. And there'd also been periodic slum clearances in the decades since. And then began the building of the London Dock, (coughs) the second of the great 18th century, sometimes mistakenly called Victorian, docks after the uh, West India Dock near what we now know as Canary Wharf. You can see the earliest part of the London Dock here, with warehouses along Pennington Street, the Ratcliffe Highway behind and St George in the East, hereafter referred to as St George's, um, in the middle distance. Um, More than ever before, Wapping, Ratcliffe, supposedly once Redcliffe, um, St George in the East and Shadwell became maritime hubs, where once there'd been a spring that turned Shadwell into a health destination, (coughs) now there were rope walks and, of course, Cable Street, named after the thicker ship's cables, wound there. The area also started to develop an unsavoury reputation and fights among groups of sailors along ethnic grounds 
um, were common, including one particularly vicious incident in 1806 when a party of Indian sailors were rescued by a group of British sailors as they were about to be hanged from a bedstead um, near where Shadwell Fire Station now stands. Nevertheless, the area was attractive for sailors looking to settle on dry land somewhere familiar and cheap. One such, Timothy Marr, left the seas behind in 1810, and in April 1811, he married a woman named Celia at St George's. On August the 29th, they were back for the baptism of their son, Timothy Jr. You don't have to work too hard at the maths to figure out the wedding might have been a bit rushed. Timothy set up business as a tailor or mercer at 29 Ratcliffe Highway. Now, at various times, different parts of the road have had different names, um, although they remain commonly known as Ratcliffe Highway. Um, but nevertheless, in their modern combined iteration as the highway, um, that has led to some renumbering. So while the modern number 29 is on the north side of the road, um, at the time in 1811 it would have been um, on the other side, it's now roughly between a car sale room and a big yellow self-storage. Um, number 29 had a shop on the ground floor, a kitchen in the basement, living quarters above and a storage area above that. By December there were five people living there, the Mars and an apprentice, James Gowan, and a servant, Margaret Jewell. At 1am on December the 8th, Constable Olney had his attention drawn to number 29, where a distressed Margaret Jewell was knocking loudly on the door. She had left when Timothy Marr was shutting up around midnight and set off on fruitless errands to pay a bill at the nearby baker's and purchase oysters. Now she was locked out and had no idea why, except some curious footsteps she had heard from within. Oh. Uh, Constable Olney investigated. Um, eventually a neighbour managed to enter through the shared back garden in the back door, and by candlelight he made two terrible discoveries. The body of James Gowan by the stairs, and then the body of Celia Marr by the front door. Only then was he able to open the door and allow Constable Olney and a growing crowd in, from the street. Together, they found Timothy Marr's body behind the counter. All three had been beaten to death. In his crib, in the kitchen, Timothy Jr. had suffered the same fate, and his throat had also been cut. George Olney was not a policeman in the modern sense. Rather, this being prior to the 1829 Metropolitan Police Act, he was one of a network managed by the local magistrates in a similar manner to the 1749-founded Bow Street Runners. Across London, there were 1,014 such men, of whom only 163 were full-time. The greatest total number was to be found in the city, with Tower Hamlets, which included much of the new docks, second. Protecting trade is a clear priority. Um, when Olney, whose duties may also have included collecting taxes and catching rats, um, came across Margaret Jewell, he'd been doing something that could earn him and his colleagues a little bit of extra cash, calling the hour. However, the murderer or murderers, whoever they may be, were also unlucky, because there was another force not included in these numbers nearby. 
formed by two magistrates, Patrick Colquhoun and John Harriet, in 1798, as the West India Merchants and Planters Marine Police Institute, <laughs> known in 1811 as the Thames River Police, and now as the Met's Marine Policing Unit, they're often claimed to be the oldest professional police force in Britain, and they immediately took an interest. It was River, stop shaking your head, Neil. <laughs> I said often, I didn't say correctly. Um, it was River Police Constable Horton who discovered the apparent murder weapon in Mars shop, a maul similar to a mallet, bloodstained and with a broken tip. The Mars were buried, a final visit to St George's, on December the 15th, attended by Celia's mother and sisters and Timothy's brother and friends. Man and wife were 27 years old. Their son had lived for 14 weeks. The body of James Gowan was released to his family. There were clues. Firstly, there was talk of three men loitering in the street before midnight. Secondly, a neighbour reported the noise of what they estimated as 10 to 12 men running through an empty house um, near on, into Pennington Street. Um, shortly afterwards, finally, there was a ripping chisel, um, primarily a shipwright's tool, but also used by a carpenter who'd been working on Mars' shop earlier in the year and which had been lost before mysteriously reappearing on the fateful night. Um, later, there was also talk of bloodstained clothes spotted in the street, and rather embarrassingly, the magistrates had to appeal for the return of this potentially crucial evidence. Um, robbery could seemingly be ruled out. Change was found on the counter and in Miles, Timothy Miles' pocket, and £152, a substantial amount for the time, uh, in a drawer. Amongst others, Cornelius Hart, the assistant to the aforementioned carpenter, was arrested, along with a bricklayer, two Portuguese sailors, uh, and a man overheard boasting of his involvement in a pub, only to be found incoherent in front of the judge and rightly admonished. Uh, a former servant of the Miles was also called to deny any ill feeling. A £50 reward was offered by the magistrates of St George's, along with a £20 private reward, and another £20 put up by Thames River Police Mary, uh, Magistrate John Harriet, uh, specifically for information regarding the three men seen before the murders. Um, although Harriet was reprimanded by the Home Secretary for his trouble, the offering of rewards being seen as outside his remit. The story was soon to do that. On December the 19th, around 11pm, a Constable Anderson was finishing his shift and approaching his lodgings in New Gravel Lane, now Garnet Street, when he entered the King's Arms pub. He knew the owners, 56-year-old John Williamson and his 60-year-old wife Elizabeth Well, the couple having run the pub since 1796. And whilst Elizabeth was arranging for a servant to carry Anderson's drink home, she told him of a strange man in a brown coat who had caught her attention outside. Thirty minutes later, Anderson wanted another drink um, and went out onto the street again where he was met by a crowd watching an incredible scene. Namely, a lodger at the pub, John Turner, descending from an upstairs window using bedsheets tied together whilst either largely or completely naked. 
On reaching the ground, he managed to explain that he'd been woken by a cry of MURDER! Or something similar and probably not quite so overdramatic. Um, Constable Anderson, armed with his stick, a butcher, armed with a cleaver, and a man with a poker, broke into the cellar. There they discovered John Williamson's body, his head beaten, his throat cut, and one of his legs broken. His hand had also been cut, presumably in attempting to defend himself. In the kitchen, discovered by others who'd entered on the ground floor, lay Elizabeth Williamson and Bridget Harrington, a servant, barmaid, or both. Their skulls had been fractured and their throats cut, Harrington's almost to the bone. Williamson's 14-year-old granddaughter had somehow managed to sleep through all the chaos. The date on this illustration, by the way, is not a mistake. Again, a publication at the height of the Ripper murders, making reference back to 1811. It was again suspected that a maul was amongst the weapons used, um, although something variously described as an iron bar or hook um, was also found near John Williamson's body. Some reports called this a ripping hook, but it does seem to have been distinct from the ripping chisel found at the earlier scene. A word, then, about the tools mentioned so far. At the Museum of London Docklands are these two exhibits of 19th century shipwrights' tools. The selection on the left is unlabelled, and with the greatest of respect to the wonderful museum, the selection on the right is mislabelled. The item in the middle of the picture on the right is supposedly an ads, which I had to look up, but which it definitely isn't. The item to the right, which is clearly a hammer, is apparently a pair of pincers. <laughs> From contemporary illustrations, I am fairly confident that what we are looking at in the centre of the picture on the right is what in this case we are calling a ripping chisel. And either on the far left or in the middle of the left-hand picture, illustrations vary on the size of the handle, is what we are calling a maul. In our present tale. Back to 1811. The two attacks were immediately assumed connected and word spread quickly. London Bridge was closed and the Bow Street runners were brought in. A new reward of 100 guineas, £105, was offered by the Shadwell magistrates in addition to a recent £500 reward from the government and £100 put up by the Prince Regent himself. The rewards available now totaled the modern equivalent of more than £33,000. For the first time, a pardon to any accomplices not directly involved was also on the table. None of this was sufficient to save the authorities from criticism, with some writers even opining, it's a good word, isn't it, even opining um, that the police, such as they were, were either inept or corrupt. They could really do with a breakthrough. At the King's Arms, John Williamson's watch was missing. It was hardly the worst thing done to him that day, but it was suggestive. Maybe the motive was robbery after all, and Margaret Jewell's knocking had interrupted proceedings at the earlier crime scene. There were also two other clues. 
the pub, backed onto wasteland, uh, intended waiting for the building of the London Docks Eastern Extension. And a rear window was found with a bloodstained sill with two sets of footprints in the ground beyond, indicating a route of escape. Alternatively, a witness said they'd seen two men, one tall, one shorter, and limping, making their way up New Gravel Lane towards the highway after the murders, with the taller one addressing the other as Mahoney. And John Turner also said he'd seen a tall man rifling through Elizabeth Williamson's pockets. But these two pairs of supposed culprits, the tall man and the limping man and the two responsible for the blood, footprints, etc., um, had made off in completely opposite directions. It didn't make much sense. And which, if any, was the figure in the brown coat. Crucially, examination at the mall found at the Mars had also discovered a set of initials, either IP or JP. A description was circulated. Was a solution at hand after all, he says. Maybe it was. <laughs> we know very little about John Williams. Some newspapers claimed he was Irish, whilst he said he was Scottish. Sounds Welsh to me, but be that way. Maybe his real name was Mary Kelly, we will never know. Um, he was a sailor and was set to have sailed with Timothy Marr, who lived there, lest we forget. Um, sailor had said to have sailed with Timothy Marr. He'd been drinking at the King's Arms um, on December the 19th, and, interpret this as you will, was said to be particularly friendly with Elizabeth. Um, he may or may not have been the John Williams who enlisted in the Royal Navy in 1804 and sailed on board HMS Calcutta, in which case he may have still been there a year later when the ship was captured by the French with the death of six sailors and the arrest of the captain. But then again, maybe not. Um, what we do know is that by December of 1811, he, he was lodging at the Pear Tree, run by Sarah Vermilai, sometimes reported as Vermilo, um, in lieu of her husband Robert, who was imprisoned for debt. There, Williams was attracting attention. His roommate told how on the night of the Marr murders, Williams returned late, demanding that a candle was extinguished before he would approach. And following the King's Arms murders, he was also said have appeared newly flush with cash. Most important, though, was a memory stirred up in Mrs. Vermelai's mind by the description of the mall. It turned out that just such a tool had been kept in a chest by another lodger accessible to anyone living at the pear tree, and had become a favoured toy of her nephews, who had noticed its absence. The mall's owner was John Peterson, and his initials were stamped on his tools. Williams was arrested on the day of the Williamson's funerals, December the 22nd, examined at Shadwell's Magistrates Court, and then sent to Coldbathfield's prison to spend Christmas awaiting further interrogation. He was still only one suspect. Another, Sylvester Driscoll, um, was also locked up in Coldbathfield's, and, there, and Cornelius Hart wasn't off the hook yet either. There was now a fourth figure too, 
a pole, William Ablass, better known as Long Billy. In the crowded but connected world of Wapping, all four men apparently knew each other, and Ablass, at least, was also a sailor and had sailed with Williams just months before on a ship named after Roxburgh Castle in Scotland. Williams's, Williams's maintained innocence was not helped by his admission that on the very day of the King's Arms murders, he'd been seeking treatment for a leg wound. And the fact he wasn't particularly tall, um, nor by a muddy pair of stockings, and the fact that he had recently shaved off his supposedly distinctive whiskers. As speculation grew, it was even suggested that maybe Williams wasn't his real name after all. If he was Irish, could it perhaps be Mahoney? On December the 28th, the magistrates convened to hear from and of Williams once more. Whilst evidence, albeit circumstantial, was mounting against him, cash and pawn tickets, um, a peculiar visit to a friend that now took on sinister connotations, and hearsay regarding the stabbing of a Portuguese sailor. Um, Robert Vermelai was also interviewed in prison and identified them all, and helpfully, he now also thought that the item found by John, Williams's, John Williamson's body may also have been from the same chest. The magistrates were to be disappointed. That morning news broke. John Williams was dead, found hanged in his cell. When Mrs. Vermelai heard the news, she exhibited a newfound hesitancy about some of her former claims. An inquest was convened at Coldbath Fields where the coroner had no such doubts. Williams had made his murderous capabilities certain. The governor of the prison was unable to attend, but the coroner felt this was of no consequence because clearly he had no questions to answer. This is despite talk of loud noises heard in Williams's cell overnight, um, and the fact that at least one fellow prisoner, Driscoll, may have had reason to want him silenced and see him take the blame. Um, but none of this was important anymore. Either way, Williams was a criminal, guilty of fellow de say, a felon to himself. On the evening of December the 30th, a carriage arrived at Wellclose Square, where a watch house stood on the corner of the now-vanished ship alley. Inside, accompanied by the Deputy Constable of St George's, was the body of John Williams. The events to follow had been carefully planned out during a meeting between a Shadwell magistrate and the Home Secretary on the day of Williams's death. In place of the expected execution, the public were now going to be treated to an exhibition, a combination of the traditional punishment for fellow de say and a sense of righteous retribution for the cheating of justice. At 10.30am the next morning, New Year's Eve, the corpse was on the move again, dressed in prison clothes with rolled up sleeves showing arms turning black. It was displayed on an inclined cart secured by a rope tied under its arms. At each side of the lifeless head were displayed two very specific items, the ripping chisel 
and the Mall, taken from 29 Ratcliffe Highway just a few weeks earlier. The cart set off, led by six officials on horseback, passing both 29 Ratcliffe Highway once and the King's Arms twice, because it needed to go all the way down to Wapping before it could turn around. Outside number 29, Williams's head flopped to the right, as if, reporters speculated, he was ashamed to look at the scene. An official clambered up onto the cart to fix it back into position. The whole journey was watched by an estimated 10,000 people. Finally, the cart came to a stop by a pre-prepared six feet deep hole at the crossroads where Cannon Street Road meets Cable Street in the shadow of St George in the East. Here, Williams's body was dumped, covered with quicklime and buried. Before those last two steps, there was a final tradition for suicide burials to observe, driving a stake through the heart. Here, there was a final custom touch as the stake was driven home with none other than the fateful mall. <clears throat> Inquiries continued for a time. Driscoll, Blass, Hart and an Irishman named Cahill were able to prove alibis. Timothy Marr's brother had also been questioned during December but was able to exonerate himself. Um, as was another pear tree lodger called Mr Richter who had come under suspicion after a pair of wet trousers following a night in the pub. We've all been there. <laughs> uh, and now conveniently remembered that when he'd sailed with Williams, the captain had made a prediction that, he would, that Williams would commit ill deeds on shore. The idea of any other person's involvement faded away. The tall man, the footprints and bloodstains, the crowd running through the empty house, the solitary man in the brown coat, they were all forgotten, along with the three men whom John Harriet had been so keen to trace. You could say it was all rather convenient. A total of £250 of reward money was paid out, including a very useful £60 to Mr and Mrs Vermelai at £30 each, Constable Horton was given £10 for finding the mall and eight other officers shared £20 between them. The two adult survivors of the attacks, one apiece, Margaret Jewell and John Turner, were awarded £5 each for their ordeals. Whilst nuance was lost, the legacy of the murders endured, for a while at least. Three years later, Whig politician Samuel Whitbread made direct reference to Williams's final journey as the disgusting spectacle which disgraced the streets of the metropolis in parliamentary discussions uh, which directly contributed to the text of the 1814 Treason Act. Now at least those convicted of treason would be allowed to die on the rope before being disemboweled, although in practice the full sentence of hanging, drawing and quartering hadn't been carried out for some years. It may seem an odd comparison, uh, but what Whitbread had realised was the discouraging violence and disorder by encouraging the population to revel in displays of brutality was at best counterproductive, be that cutting out the bowels of a living criminal or hammering a stake through the heart of a dead one. Sadly, Whitbread himself died the next year, having slit his throat 
due to a combination of ill health, financial ruin and ill-advised support for Napoleon, but that's another story. The days of crossroads burials were also numbered. The final such took place in September 1823 when Abel Griffiths was posthumously sentenced to be buried under what is now Victoria Coach Station. A fate worse than death. <laughs> Griffiths had shot his father and then himself, but the whole affair was treated in a very different fashion, with no undue ceremony and no stake, and a much smaller crowd seeming repelled by the sight of the body as opposed to celebrating its appearance as a postscript. Britain's last crossroads burial was not to remain in situ for long, as the very next day a group of men turned up in a cab, dug it up again, and deposited it at a nearby workhouse. I know. <laughs> also in 1823, the memory of the Ratcliffe Highway murders met their most <coughs> enduring champion, Thomas de Quincey, who referenced them heavily both that year in his essay discussing the knocking on the uh, gate in Macbeth, and in his later lecture-turned essay on murder considered as one of the fine arts. De Quincey, with more than a wink of an eye, pictures Williams as a kind of anti-hero and imagines the disturbance of Margaret Jewell knocking on the door, pulling him out of his murderous reverie, much the same as the, the murderous Thane of Cawdor. It's a shame that in both treatments, De Quincey gets the year of the murders wrong, um, although the legacy of these pieces can be seen by the amount of later accounts that repeat the same error. Um, the idea that Williams, of whose solitary guilt De Quincey was utterly convinced, also smoked two houses with emptiness within an hour, takes some math mathematical juggling to uh, accept. He seems to have conflated the time of the two murders, forgetting the weeks in between. Um, and yes, if you're wondering where my weird title came from, he does also compare John Williams to a domestic Attila, or Scourge of God. Attila the Sailor Man, you might say. The coming decades offered a few highlights in and around the highway. In January 1837, John Pegsworth, a messenger at the relatively newly opened St. Catherine's Dock, was taken to court on account of money owed to highway tailor John Reddy, and subsequently visited Reddy at home and asked whether he really intended to pursue the debt. Reddy said he did, so Pegsworth stabbed him. When examined at the Thames Magistrates Court, the same building which doubled as the Thames River Police Office, although John Harriet was long gone, Pegsworth's journey from Clerkenwell, from, in fact, the same prison in which John Williams had died, drew crowds outside the court in numbers which could barely have been seen since New Year's Day 26 years earlier. Viz. Soon repentant but unable to repair the damage, Pegsworth was sentenced to hang. On the evening of March the 6th, another crowd gathered outside Newgate, to watch as the scaffold was erected. When the work was completed around midnight, 20 or 30 of them gathered up straw and constructed makeshift bedding around it so they could ensure the best view the next day. For his part, Pegsworth appeared calm and measured and his death was reportedly quick. He almost passed into historical curiosity, being the penultimate execution at Newgate before the coronation of Queen Victoria. 
a pint to anyone later who can tell me who the last one was without Googling it. Mark need not apply. Um, the highway also offered ample opportunities for sensationalist writers. Watts Phillips wrote The Wild Tribes of London in 1855, two years before his play The Dead Heart caused a feud with Charles Dickens. The Wild Tribes sees the author travel across London depicting scenes of music halls, pubs, circuses and streets, the dismal and dirty Grays Inn Lane, the confusion of Petticoat Lane and the headquarters of indigence and filth of St Giles and more, and the people he meets there, the East End slop seller, Idle Tom and a recurring character called Jack. He also devotes three chapters to the highway and surrounding streets. In New Gravel Lane, previously site of the King's Arms, um, he offers a thanksgiving that the sailors' lodging houses, um, dens of infamy as he sees them, will soon be coming down. Um, and he's amusing, if unsympathetic, about a woman he sees there begging for gin money, imploring the reader to offer her oblivion at any price. Um, elsewhere, he also discusses frequent suicides at the bridge in New Gravel Lane, which is a subject also referenced elsewhere around the time, and ends by declaring how such a fate would be fitting for a life commenced in Ratcliffe Highway. It's all a bit sub-Dickensian, um, although Watsonips does acknowledge that in his preface, um, and less forgivably, you might have noticed this from the illustration already, it's also really quite racist, um, but it nevertheless shows <coughs> that the area retained an exploitable reputation. A few more tales quickly. The first is one of the best little courtroom vignettes I've come across for a long time. In 1865, two sailors were passing when they stopped to watch two women fighting outside the Rosen Crown on the corner of the highway in Chigwell Hill, not far from number 29. They were so distracted that they fell foul to the attention of a thief named James Sullivan, who relieved one of them of his watch and chain. Sullivan was apprehended and taken to the magistrate's court. But when he was committed for trial, the sailors implored the court to deal with the matter on that day, as otherwise they would have to choose between reparation or missing their ship. Sullivan was duly recalled and told that if he pled guilty, the matter could be resolved immediately. I am innocent, he declared. A voice from the gallery disagreed. Sullivan then acknowledged that he too would like things wrapped up ASAP. Um, but was told by the magistrate that that wouldn't be possible if he kept maintaining his innocence. After more toing and froing, Sullivan gave in, stating simply, I plead guilty. The magistrate must have breathed a sigh of relief and sentenced him to six months' hard labour. Your Honour, pleaded the now convicted man, the greatest lie I ever told was that I was guilty. The magistrate didn't buy it, and the farcical scene ended with his reply that, I believe you are guilty, and you told the truth. Sullivan was led away. <coughs> a year later, a skeleton buried in quicklime sometime during the 1840s was discovered in the cellar of a burnt-out lodging house and doesn't seem to have ever been identified. Sailors also continued to fight and men continued to get drunk. In December 1870, two nights of disorderly behaviour were reported under the headline, Reign of Terror in Ratcliffe Highway, which seems rather quaint, given what had gone before, frankly. And then, he says, <laughs> came the big event 
John Williams's body was not to stay buried. In July 1886, the Commercial Gas Company commissioned work on new pipelines in St George in the East, including at the Cannon Street Road, Cable Street Crossroads. The workmen of John Aird and Sons must have had quite a surprise when they got there and uncovered a skeleton six feet down with a wooden stake still sticking out from its chest. What jumps out about this report, though, is that the discovery was said to have not only shocked the locals, but confused them. After 75 years, the tale of the murders was no longer on people's minds, although inquiries amongst older residents did lead to an identification. Now, there can't have been too many octogenarians knocking around Ratcliffe Highway at the time, so that's understandable. Um, but nevertheless, it raises an interesting question. Had Williams's body not resurfaced in such dramatic fashion in 1886, it's entirely possible that the case would not have featured as heavily, if at all, in reports about events than a little over two years in the future. So on to those references, or a selection of them. Um, in a number of cases, allusions to 1811 are in plain sight. They're contained within editions that feature news of well-known developments in the autumn of terror. We've already looked at the Stars report from September the 6th, which also featured news of Mary Ann Nichols' funeral um, and a lengthy write-up of a reporter visiting a lodging house in Thrall Street looking for leather apron, and then the police searching for him from Shoreditch to Brick Lane, including the supposed thoughts of Mike, the George Yard grocer, who declared that the man is unquestionably mad. Watts Phillips would have been proud. Two days later, on the day of the murder of Annie Chapman, the Leytonstone Express and Independent stated their confidence that the Whitechapel murderer was a maniacal homicide, much like John Williams, whom they described as De Quincey's horrible hero, also recalling the daily and nightly terror of his apparent crimes. Back to the crimes of the day, where's Steve? The same edition featured speculation about the Buckrow Slaughtermen, although it came down against their guilt. Um, the Echo, three days later, pointed out the singular similarities between the two series, supposedly completed by Chapman's murder, although their own write-up throws up more differences and similarities. Um, that's an edition that also featured news of Samuel Montague's proposed £100 reward, turned down by MP Edward Lee Pemberton, recalling, for me at least, memories of John Harriet and his £20 reward in 1811. Um, and not for the last time, De Quincey's 1812 error is also repeated. On October the 3rd, reported the next day, a man described as a foreigner and as bearing a resemblance to, presumably, the man known to posterity as broad-shouldered man, was arrested after a woman's cries were heard in a court off the highway, but released soon after. The Echo's report also told of the speed at which rumours about the arrest spread including one that the arresting officer had been stabbed. We don't know whether the man uh, in question left for America the next day, as he told the police he was planning to, but it might have been wise. And to come back a little to John's talk earlier, of course we also have Mary Kelly's supposed links to the highway in Pennington Street and Mrs Carty of Breezers Hill, um, and Elizabeth Stride's links to the Swedish church, um, located where Swedenborg Gardens now stands, right next to where the parade of John Williams's body would have begun. Now we can't leave the 1880s behind 
without also looking quickly at this next report from October 1889, one of many around that time bearing headlines similar to Jack the Ripper Strikes Again, or something similar, but surely one of the most unique. Let's read it together. At the Thames Police Court yesterday, Edward Hambler, 61, a ship's joiner, was charged with disorderly conduct of being dressed in female attire. Inspector Ferret, I mean that just makes it, doesn't it? Inspector Ferret, Inspector Ferret stated that on Sunday night he saw a crowd of about 600 persons in Burnley Street, Ratcliffe. He went up and found the prisoner, dressed in woman's clothes, having on a hat and veil, black jacket, print dress, two flannel petticoats, and a dress improver. All the people around him said that he was Jack the Ripper. The prisoner offered no explanation of his conduct. I wish he had. The centenary of the Ratcliffe Highway murders was marked by a few newspaper articles, but no new information. And apart from that brief flurry of interest, the story of Timothy, Celia, Timothy Jr., John, Elizabeth and Bridget, and of John Williams, Long Billy and Co. once again faded away. Nevertheless, in 1971, when Frank Smith was looking for ghostly tales for the magazine he co-edited, Man, Myth and Magic, he too experienced the pull of the highway. Aha! Um, in an article titled The Phantom Vicar of Ratcliffe Wharf, Smith told of a grey-haired, black-clad figure appearing and promptly disappearing again on three consecutive Sundays down by the Wapping Riverside. Uh, curiously, although in his write-up Smith recalls Ratcliffe Highway being for many years the wickedest thoroughfare in London, take that Dorset Street, he makes no reference to 1811. Although he does recall Jack the Ripper terrorising Whitechapel and Limehouse, which is a weird one. Um, Smith finally found a source across London in Islington who had a solution. This man's grandfather had told him of the Vicar of Ratcliffe Cross, who around a century earlier had run a lodging house where he murdered his guests. How he ended up being a ghost himself was left to the imagination. Peter Underwood, the rightly renowned paranormal author, included the story in his 1973 anthology Haunted London, albeit without an unequivocal endorsement. Unfortunately for Underwood and others, who felt the ghostly vicar might have been a worthy inclusion to the ghostly canon, in 1975, Frank Smith admitted that having been exploring the area and failed to come up with anything, he'd invented the whole story one afternoon in a pub, with no less than the son of Cambridge spy Kim Philby. So there's a programme to be made. Um, also in 1975, crime fiction author P.D. James, along with historian T.A. Critchley, published The Maul and the Pear Tree. In her final chapter, titled The Eighth Victim, James makes a persuasive case for William's innocence and also suggests almost casually that the truth of what happened might be found if records could be uncovered of a mutiny aboard the Roxburgh Castle, the ship both, both Williams and a Blass had sailed on. In fact, she says so in such a fashion that suggests to me that she knew full well that such records did exist and what they said. If I'm right, then unfortunately the chance is that the truth died with her in 2014. 
Finally, James also gives us one of the most enduring myths about the case or its aftermath. She couldn't resist, and neither can I. Although I have to say from the start that an urban myth is what it would seem to be. It is said, it is said, that in 1886, when Williams's body was unearthed, that the landlord of the Crown and Dolphin, situated at the crossroads by then, not in 1811, but by then, um, and still identifiable in its modern guise as expensive flats, that the landlord either purchased or was gifted a macabre keepsake, Williams's skull, which he kept behind the bar. If it's true, then where it is since the pub closed down in 1991 is anyone's guess. Grim and a touch surreal, mysterious and quite possibly the product of rumour and imagination, it seems a fitting place to end. And that, ladies and gentlemen, almost, is that. I just have three things left to say quickly. Firstly, thank you very much. Um, secondly, I do have here some selected references and acknowledgements. No one ever reads these things, but there they are if you want it. And finally, and most importantly, cheers. Thank you, Trevor. We're very, very short of time, so I'm not going to ask any questions, so I'll, I'll pest you later. What a good idea. Great. <laughs> um, so, any questions for Trevor? We've got about, literally got about five minutes, I'm afraid. Um, well, it's not so much a question. Uh, I, was, I was just thinking that uh, uh, as they dug up uh, John Williams uh, in 1886, did they therefore release an evil spirit? And was John Williams' spirit? <laughs> did you ever watch the ITV series White Trap a few years ago? <laughs> right. I have a theory. You know that was cancelled before the end, yeah. and they never quite yeah. figured told us what they were getting at with the whole there's an evil spirit. Yeah. I have a feeling that's what they were going for. Really? That's my theory on that. Based on nothing. But I just <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, come on, don't let him off this easy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, just, a comment, True, sorry. just a comment. So, um, I think in the aftermath of the uh, Ratchet Highway murders, the parliamentary debates turned to the idea of creating a much more efficient police force. Mm. Or a professional, yeah. Um, yeah, and sometimes that's cited as one of the, along with the murder of um, Spencer Person, is one of the reasons why we created it. Of course, it's, a, it's spurious because we didn't create the police force until 1829, but um, and I think it's probably summed up by the Home Secretary Times this time. I'm trying to search the exact quote, but I think it was something like, I'd rather half a dozen throats were cut in the rapture hardly every, every week yeah. than to countenance a system of police like the French have. Yes, which has an interesting link to Robert Anderson's if we had a system like the French 77 years later, yeah. No, that's one of the things I find really fascinating about this case, and I didn't have time to go into it in great detail, but I tried to sort of touch on it. But the fact that it comes up in, you know, three major pieces of legislation, it arguably has an influence on the 1829 Metropolitan Police Act, the 1814 Treason Act, and the 1834 Burial of Suicides Act. It's influencing all of those, and that's... Not many cases have done that. Aren't the British Empire doing well today after all the talks? John, I think you're the final question. Do we know um, what was the skeleton reinterred? And if so, where? 
It apparently was, um, but no one wants to admit it. No one wants to admit having it. Um, so my best guess would be St George's, because it's the nearest place and it would have been his parish church. Um, but if so, he's not in their official burial records. And whether or not he had his head is not either. Okay, well thank you very much everyone, and thank you for Trevor Bond. Thank you. And that was Trevor Bond at the 2019 East End Conference. We would like to thank Trevor Bond, Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, Andrew Firth and Carl Kopak for making this and all of the talks from this year's conference available for our listeners. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org where you will find over 170 roundtable discussions, author interviews, conference presentations and archive recordings all about the Whitechapel murders and East End crime and history. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. <laughs>